The man of will breaks all boundaries. As above, so below. Magic of come to realize is a new way of seeing our own world. Something divine truly does exist. You're listening to the Culture Shock Podcast with your host, Dave Escuro. Happy Monday, everyone, and thank you for listening to another episode of the Occult Shock Podcast. My name is Dave, and I will be your host on this discovery through the mysteries of the universe, or at very least, hopefully I will entertain you for about an hour and a half. Uh, My guest today is someone who I'm really excited about. When I first reimagined this podcast as more of a one-on-one conversational, I made a list of all the people whom I either knew directly and personally or indirectly via social media and things like that. And at the very top of that list um, was our guest today, Ashley Ryan. And the reason why I've, I've been so excited to talk with her is because not only is she someone who shares um, an interest and practiced in the occult, in magic, but also she's a filmmaker and a screenwriter. And I just knew that we would have common ground. Um, I think that's a rare combination, both filmmaker and someone who who's involved in, in magic in, in any form. And so I knew there would always already be something there that we could bond over. But in the course of the hour plus that we were having a conversation, I I even more appreciated her presence on the podcast. Um, Ashley is in such an incredibly insightful person. Um, her background, having studied philosophy, was just completely amazing to talk about and to introduce into our broader conversations. Um, her understanding of magic um, and and her and her very sensible view on the necessity of you know technology essentially as it relates to spreading the the message of magic, the current of magic, and and also to be able to work within that sphere. I found the conversation to be very enlightening for me personally. Um, I think that we touched on some things that were really relevant to what we see so much on, you know, uh, social media and and the media in general and society at large. Um, And again, I thought that it always came from a very academic perspective, which I appreciate always. Um, So without further ado, I want to introduce Ashley Ryan. She's known online as the Pythian Priestess. She runs the Pythian Mystery School. She does tarot reading. She offers classes. She's an avid researcher and just an incredibly wonderful person to talk to. Um, if you are interested in positive, uh, educated, academic, digital content, Pythian Priestess, Ashley Ryan, that's the one you need to follow. Um, I think you'll just only get positive, insightful takes and uh, hopefully some some gnosis that will allow you to further your own magical journey. So thank you once again, and I hope you enjoy my conversation with Ashley Ryan, the Pythian Priestess. Yeah, this is fantastic. What an amazing tool to use. It's so cool how we, we have these things in the 21st century. Like sometimes I think about in the 1920s and, you know, up through like, you know, the digital age, where editors don't have to go through film and like, like imagine syncing that. Nope. Mm-mm. Well, I, I have a buddy of mine who's just old enough to have remembered um, the old editing systems, like when Avid was first introduced, oh, you know, wow. and, and I remember he, he was telling me that he was at some kind of, um, I don't know if it was a convention or one of those things and where someone brought up this new technology and, and in his mind, he was like, this thing is never going to take off. What do you do? You take film and you digitize it and you put it in a computer to edit. Right. And then of course, by the time I came around and filmed, that was standard. And we'd already had a, 
I think I learned on on Final Cut or not Final Cut, um, Adobe, right? Oh yeah, yeah. In grad school, they had us. We worked on Adobe as well. Um, I was fortunate enough, actually, to have one time to have shot on film. Wow. And uh, it's expensive. We'll start with that. Yeah. And you become filmmaking becomes so much more conscience because you don't or what I'm trying to say is it becomes more conscious because yeah. you don't have take after take after take. You get maybe two shots, maybe three, if you have the money. Yeah. Well, I, I was listening to an, uh, an interview with Quentin Tarantino and he's mm-hmm. talking about film. And of course, Tarantino and Robert Rodriguez for me were two of my bigger influences as, as I was developing an interest in film and, and they're very polar opposites on this conversation about digital versus celluloid. Um, but the the big thing that Tarantino said that I'm sure some DPs will get upset at me for, but uh, don't kill the messenger. He said the appeal of digital is that DPs are being more lazy because with film you have to light it and you have to capture it in the in the frame, right? In the in the celluloid frame, versus in digital you can watch it in real time. You can color correct. I mean, I have lots of friends that are DITs. You can do so many things to um, adjust the lighting and and look of it digitally so that uh, it requires maybe less time. Now, whether that's positive or negative, that's subjective, certainly. But it's an interesting point of view. I remember when I colored my thesis in grad school, I was like, this is the movie magic. I felt like what I did is like, I'm just putting on a play, but watching this person go through, and it was expensive, you know, it was like $800,000 to get a 20 minute clip colorized. Um, But I love silent film. In fact, like that's why I do a lot of my TikToks in black and white is because Mm. I am a very expressive person, but I don't really like, I'm not good at memorizing so getting able to act without words and having that drastic color, that three-point uh, three lighting, it's so dramatic and so beautiful that I, I hope noir makes a comeback. I, I agree. I've always been a huge noir fan. I, um, my Blade Runner is my favorite film of all time. And uh, we were just uh, my wife and I were just watching Reservoir Dogs talking about Tarantino again. And I didn't realize how harsh of lighting he used. Mm. I mean, it's almost like no... no um, no filtration, no, no, you know, no, it's just, it's like harsh pools of light kind of either coming in at an angle or straight down in some instances, creating those hard shadows, almost like being against a window, right? Where it's like almost every character is half in light, half in darkness, which I'm sure is somewhat symbolic of, especially within the context of that story, you know, showcasing the morality of each of these individual thieves. Absolutely. I think my favorite, like if I would say, it's not really noir, it's a little bit occult too, but the cabinet of Dr. Caligari. Oh, wow. Yeah. Oh God. That's like 1920s. You can, might still be on Netflix. I don't know. But like, I was more scared watching that movie than I was watching modern horror movies. Yeah. The suspense and the, it was definitely the shadows too. Like, it gave you this very creepy, eerie feeling. And I recommend anyone who likes the occult to like go take time. You've got two hours of your life to go watch this silent movie. But it does. It gives more context to the storytelling, I think. Lighting, is, for me, was one of the hardest things to learn. Um, you are literally painting with light. And it comes to all that drastic changes, all of the learning how colors complement each other. It's very much, in a, in a lot of ways, a science. 
Oh, absolutely. It's like, and an art and a craft. I mean, it's mm-hmm. like, you know, no different. I, I, I like the way you phrase it. You're painting with light because it is very much like that. It's like you have a blank canvas and you then have to manipulate these photons into creating this textural scene for the, you know, before the actors even ever arrive. Yeah, learning about dispersing and different gradients, like all of that stuff to me was like so foreign because I spend most of my time behind the camera. I spend uh, writing mostly. Um, I love producing though. Um, Producing and putting things together, being the glue of a project to me is is very fulfilling. Uh, But I love all aspects of film and I made it my uh, my mission when I'm on sets, I'm like going to go kind of be like, watch what other people are doing, watch the gaffers do their thing, watch the electricians and be like, wow, how does this all work? And it's a, it's like an anthill is the best yeah. way I can describe it. Yeah, absolutely. So, so let's go back. What, what drew you into film? We'll start with film first. Cause you're, you're a person. One of the reasons why I want to talk to you so bad when I first started conceiving this podcast, I made a whole list of folks um, and, and you were right at the top of that, uh, not only because obviously you are involved in the occult, but because you're a filmmaker. So we, we were compatible in that way. Um, but what, what drew you to film? Do you, is there like a moment in your life that you remembered thinking, this is what I want to do, or, or even retroactively thinking, you know what, I didn't know it at the time, but certainly this was an influence on my trajectory. So I've always wanted to be a writer. I knew I wanted to be a writer uh, at the age of six. When I had my Lisa Frank binder and I was writing fan fiction for PBS as Arthur. Wow. Nice. Nice. Not going to lie. Great stories. A lot of weird romance stuff going on. But um, film in particular came into my mind in college. I had always watched films with my dad every Friday night. That was like our thing. I've seen, you know, the classics. I've seen the 80s classics. And... um, it was so strange. I remember being in the dining hall and I was friends with this guy named Pinky because he had a pink mohawk. <laughs> and he was talking about this screenwriting class. I was like, screenwriting? What's that? And he's like, duh, you write movies, writing for a screen. I was like, oh my God, that's a thing. And it was just like this world opened up for me. I was a second semester freshman. Okay. I was like, okay. Well, I'm going to take screenwriting class now because I like writing and this is a new um, this is a new format I've never studied. And it is both my favorite and probably the hardest to write. Oh, yeah. Um, I live with a writer. My wife's a writer as well. And uh, it's tough breaking down stories and, and formatting them and then taking the movie in your head and then translating it into a page. Yeah, it, it's so hard and because when you focus on screenwriting, you're focusing on different aspects. It's really the blueprint. We're focusing on story and character. But similarly, you have to paint a story with your words. And it's not about descriptions of locations, but it's about the interactions between people. Right, right. And I, I've always held for forever that the most important aspect of any film, then it doesn't matter if it's comedy, horror, action, and that's tension. Absolutely. And tension is created in the script. You know, certainly performances can can elevate it and certain film angles and what have you. But in the at the end of the day, if your script lacks tension, um, then then you're going to fall flat more often than not. I remember in in that first screenwriting class, I took a 
my professor was Lorraine Portman. She's an independent filmmaker in Florida. And she told me that every scene, you need to have hope and dread. It's called your hope and hope and dread axis. You want your audience to hope something for your character, but dread that something else could happen if they don't achieve it. I love that. That's really good. Nice. So you, you start taking this, the screenwriting classes. Was it something that you took to right away? Um, Like what, how did that progress? Because you've, you you're now living in Los Angeles and and working in the film industry and uh, I think according to your Twitter bio you placed at an Austin Film Fest where I I lived for many years so how does that taking that first screenwriting class budget into a, a film career? So my let's see, I took screenwriting. I I actually like begged the dean to let me take it multiple times. I took it four <laughs> times total. Nice. The same class? Uh, no, she, she. we found a way around it. So like every class would be focused on a different genre. Nice. Okay. So my first, okay. So I wrote a feature. My first feature was actually what I would later find out was a past life experience. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. Uh, it's a little personal, so I don't want to get too much into it. It's like, I want to come back to it one day when it's made, but yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it, it's a hot mess, but it was a sci-fi. And then it like stressed me out writing that much. Um, so I was like, okay, well, what if I wrote TV? And mm. I wrote something called Leave It to Cleaver. Okay. And it, it was a 1950s satirical comedy about what if all of the men in this town became zombies, but the wives were too attached to leave them. And they became their pets. <laughs> I like it. I like and it. Nice. Very first complete, like I would say really completed. Mm-hmm. Uh, TV, TV spec. Oh, it's not really spec. It's a pilot. Um, but that's the one that placed at Austin. That's, that's so cool. It's a great concept. Thank you. Let me, let me move my cat. He's being sure annoying. Thing. So that placed, and I was so shocked. I, um, you know, I planned to go to Austin and I did, uh, and then I was like, okay, well, this is like a viable career now. Like I got to do all this networking. I, I got to learn more about the industry itself mm-hmm. and I was like, okay, so I have to move to LA. That's something mm-hmm. I have to do. So I applied to lots of grad schools and I decided upon Loyola Marymount University okay, because they have a very specific program called writing and producing for TV. Oh, nice. So it was a three-year program that I was accepted into. And then during that time, like, yeah, I went to school, but it was mostly at night. Mm. And during the day I interned and I interned at a lot of different places. I did a couple production companies, uh, one called Green Harbor Productions. And then I did a a small comic book uh, Mm -hmm. indie place. And then I moved up to Stars, TNT, TBS, and MTV. Wow, nice. Yeah, I was very fortunate and, and excited to have done all of that work and getting to be like really understanding the business side mm-hmm. too, because I worked in development. Yeah. Um, and I was like, okay. And I was fortunate enough to, re- I got a job right after I graduated grad school. And then I worked on, uh, I can talk about now, ridiculousness for MTV. Oh, uh, excellent. Mm-hmm. Wow, very cool. Yeah, that's right. I think I saw you post something about it that it run a couple years, right? 
Yeah, I ran a couple years and I was, uh, so I had a couple of t- titles on that show. I was not just a production assistant, but I was the assistant to the director and I was also his personal assistant. Wow, that's that's really amazing position to be in. For those who are trying to be writers or directors in particular, like there's something, not every film can afford that that position oftentimes, but for, for you to have the ability to sit and work with someone and shadow them and truly get to learn what that position entails. Uh, and I think it's really important that you brought the business aspect because of course people watch movies and they, they somewhat grasp the creative aspect of it in, to some degree, but, but there is a true business about it. And um, on a podcast that I was recently a guest on, someone asked me what I thought made a good director. And I said, uh, from my position as a producer, it's, it's uh, someone who knows what they want, but also knows what they can get. And, and and that's, that's the thing that not all directors have, because of course, some, some directors just want everything. And then some directors are kind of too collaborative, right? It's, it's a, it's a, it's a finesse position that you have to really be in. And then you have to help execute it on top of that. It is. And directors have different responsibilities in different types of production. So Mm -hmm reality TV versus narrative TV versus a film, every director is going to have different abilities and responsibilities. I have seen, you know, I think the most important thing is learning and understanding that production is one of the most stressful things you will ever do. Oh, I'm aware as someone (laughs) who's just been dealing with kidney stones that I am a hundred percent positive film has contributed to. It is, um, I always say this to, I, I, when I used to production manage the annoying orange for cartoon network, Cool. I did season one and then season two, I worked in house at the production company. And so uh, there was a fellow that was coming to replace me on set. Cause I was working for the studio now and he wanted to pick my brain. And I, and I said, this is the advice that I can give you. Um, Cause he, he'd had some experience producing like docu-series type stuff. Um, and this was animated. This is kind of a hybrid between animation and live action. And I said, this is the number one lesson that I can give you wake up in the morning and think about everything that can go wrong. If you can shoulder that burden and go to set, you'll figure the rest out. But that's the part that's untrainable. Like it's a weird sadomasochistic kind of thing that those of us who work in the industry, but specifically in production shoulder every single time we walk onto a set. And it's in every, it's all the way through the entire business from making the deal to development, to production, to post, even to broadcast. Like you have to worry, what is the worst thing that can happen? And I, I joke, that's not really a joke, that it is my extreme anxiety and my ability to be high functioning and manage it is actually what makes me such a great producer. Well, and I think, I mean, I don't know you personally, but certainly based on our limited interaction, you're always, you always do tend to stay pretty positive. Yeah. Um, you know, which, which, uh, if I'm being honest, sometimes I struggle with when I'm on set and because I came up a different way, I came up sort of the indie routes and, um, and we're, we're in a, yeah. And it's, it's a, it's a, a evolving climate where the, the, your ability to people, I hate the term people manage I, when I hate using those buzz terms, but your ability to interact with individuals and cater the way you interact with them to their specific needs and, and it's really a flow state you have to kind of enter into because those days of just 
being a producer who walks on set and everyone respects that that's kind of gone in a lot of regards it is it is and that's really sad and covid's made it worse but we'll get to that later (laughs) yeah i mean i mean covid covid's kind of upheaved i mean i did like four films during covid it's it's sort of upheaved everything um but what i what i'm finding and of course this is a part of the the constant evolution is that you have to continuously sharpen your craft like if you were a cinematographer you would keep up with the latest uh, technology or film techniques or lighting techniques as a producer, uh, same thing. You have to constantly evolve your approach to how you interact with folks and get the most out of them. You know, I'm, I'm really big on accountability. I really try to push people to do the very best because I feel like too often folks will rest on their laurels and they'll get complacent. And um, especially when you're working in smaller indie world or even digital now, what we call digital or new media, you know, all these HBO Maxes and Netflixes and Hulus of the world, they're relatively smaller budgets than would have been the case 20 years ago. And there's not a lot of time for half-assed work, but it's, it's finding a way positively, ideally, to get the most out of your crew so that you serve the vision of the story. Absolutely. And I think that like really brings me to an idea that I was talking to a close friend with a couple of days ago is how do you create when you don't have inspiration? Yeah, that's tough. It's, it's called discipline. Yeah. And you, you learn that sometimes you're going to be disciplined and what you're going to create is gross, but you, at least you did it. Because if you're sitting around waiting for the muse of inspiration to sing into your ear, you could be waiting a lifetime. Yeah. And a lot of people do. I call it uh, um, paralysis by analysis. You know, people, uh, it's funny. I, I pulled the five of swords today, so maybe it's appropriate, but it's like you get stuck by your own thoughts uh, or lack of thoughts and you, and you overthink things and then you just, you, people, lifetimes pass and folks never do. As a, as a writer, uh, I've heard different, you know, there's different approaches of course, but are you the kind of person that sits and writes for a certain amount of time every day or weekly, or what is your approach from a writing perspective so that you don't watch time pass by without that creative idea coming forth? So as of right now, uh, I am writing, I'm writing 24 pages a month. Wow. Nice. So my goal is six pages a week. Well, like it it ranges between four and six. Yeah. And, And to me, that's like my week goal. And I do, I ideally in my perfect ideal world, I would love to have like a time that I wake up every morning and do the writing, but I'm not quite there yet. And I'm doing, I'm still, my life is still adjusting to my new job, my, Mm -hmm. my self-employment. So it's really in between things that I'm getting the time to write in between writing lessons, in between filming, in between clients. And you know what? I, I actually find it helpful that way too, because then I'm like really forced to in maybe 15 minutes, like what is happening in this scene? What are these right. characters feeling? And uh, I think for me, I always work better under pressure. Sure. Uh, so maybe that's like self-pressure. But I think that, again, ideally in my perfect world, we'd be waking up at 5 a.m. and writing. <laughs> but, but you know, even giving yourself that goal where you have a weekly goal, you know, whether you do it, you know, uh, a page a day or you do six pages the night before you, your deadline, 
it is still motivation that you keep to. Um, the other thing that you brought up just now that I think is important and interesting and kind of brings us to the next part of this is that you have other creative things that you do um, because I find that occult work is inherently creative and artistic. And um, so sometimes what I find is when I'm, when I've got a creative block, doing something else creative helps free up what I, what I, what I couldn't get over before. Yeah, absolutely. Especially something um, small, not small necessarily, but something that's mindful, like coloring Mm -hmm. and, and allowing your brain to process and digest the other information you're taking in while doing something that's creative and a little bit meditative, even walking for me, just going and like looking, I spend a lot of time looking at things. So like the way that the breeze moves through the trees or seeing how um, like animals move, animal movement is very interesting to me. Hmm. So I find that doing something mindful and artistic is helpful. And I agree a hundred percent. The occult has both a scientific aspect and an artistic aspect. And I think that people make the mistake that not recognizing that science is also creative. It all comes from the same place. It all comes from the study of alchemy, which in a layperson's terms would be the search for the philosophical stone or turning lead into gold. So that is creative. We try, we experiment, and then we fail or we succeed. So as, I mean, as someone who can a hundred percent empathize with how busy the film industry is, and when you're working on set, it's, it's, you know, for those who don't know, a 12 hour day is a luxury. Most of the time it's like a 14, 15, 16 hour day. And for me, I don't ever have time off when I'm working. I get calls all day long, any over the weekends, et cetera. I'm sure you do as well, but you also have a sort of a separate business uh, of sorts. You have a school, right? You have uh, you do lesson plans and and you're involved in esoteric study. Where did that passion come from? Because you have to have a passion in order to to balance the two. And and where's the intersection? Because I see it in your TikToks and your videos. I can especially now that you mentioned that you're a big fan of silent movies. Now it totally makes sense to me. But where did your interest in um, the esoteric studies come from? And that's such a broad term, right? Because the the occult, umbrella occult can mean a billion different things. Where, Where do you lie on that? And kind of where did that begin for you? So what I find, let's go, let's go back. Let's go way back into my past. So I was 14 years old living in Florida and I went to a Renaissance fair. Nice. And I saw this woman doing tarot cards. And I was like, what's that? I, I want to see that. I want to understand that. I got my reading. It was a love reading. And I wish I had listened. <laughs> <laughs> but who does that 14? Right, yeah. Um, and that's where it started. And then I, I asked her, like, where can I get these cards? And she said, you can get them at Barnes & Noble. And so I actually like, went with my friend because I was staying at her apartment that weekend, her parents' apartment. And we went to Barnes and Noble and I was like, I can't bring this giant box inside. My mom won't let me see it. She won't let me have them. Hmm. So I actually like ended up hiding them in between like pages of my school book and bringing them home. 
And that was the beginning of it. And then I, I've, I've always found ways to include occultism in my regular life. So during high school, I took public speaking mm -hmm. and I gave, a, I gave a speech on auras. Wow, nice. It was really fun. I, got, I talked about all the different types and the different colors and different shapes. And at the end of the class, it was just silent. And there was one kid who was like, so how many drugs have you taken to see these? <laughs> and I was like, that's when it first clicked for him. I'm like, oh my God, this is not an acceptable thing I'm doing. I would imagine, especially in Florida at that time. Oh, when at Catholic school. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. For sure. Which is funny because Catholicism is rooted in ritual and, and magic. But. Oh, it certainly is. But um, <laughs> it's really interesting. Once, you know, living in that community, it's not seen that way. The word ritual isn't really used. It's not, it's something you have to do. It right. is a requirement. There's a lot of like authoritative um, oversight. So when, you know, it's really interesting. In high school, I didn't know about occultism proper. I knew about new age. Mm -hmm. And so I spent a lot of time thinking I wanted to study English, thinking I wanted to study literature. And it was my graduating senior year after I take an AP English and it like clicked for me. I was like, why am I reading other people's stories about truth when I just want to learn about truth itself? Right. And I had been introduced to Plato in high school and I was like, cool, that, I want to read that. I want to understand that because I tried reading the Republic and I stopped because I was so confused. <laughs> so I went to college and I had a degree in philosophy and theology that I was studying. And then when I learned about screenwriting, I added communication in cinema studies. So I would understand how film was made and I actually just worked within the production department because I didn't want to do another degree. I wanted to understand the theory of film and like mm -hmm. why it influences people the way that it does. Um, and so when I was in college, I had to do both. It was a requirement for me to do theology and philosophy. And at the time, I was not happy about this. But see, as, a, as an older guy now who wish I had – um, the level of maturity that I have at 40 that I, you know, when I was 20, that sounds awesome to me to be able to go to school for theology and philosophy. sounds like amazing. It was, it was a very influential time in my life. I, I spent my time living and breathing philosophy for four years and I was the president of the symposium, which was our philosophical debate group. Mm -hmm. We met once a week. Uh, and during that time, like I got, I was thankful enough and lucky enough to live a, to live in it. There was a liberal arts school. Mm -hmm. So like lots of weird stuff. People want to talk about death. People wanted to talk about uh, like, you know, gruesome things and being able to have that philosophical outlook, studying existentialism and all those German philosophers, and then combining it with their love of film. Like I got to help write those stories and I did do some production and, and, undergrad i did some dping i did a lot of acting actually you know it's really funny i've never considered myself to be an actor i've never taken a formal class in it but mm -hmm. i've done i've done a lot of it which brings well, us to cox sorry i was gonna say well you're very expressive and and you're able to convey whether whether or not you have formal training or not you're 
I it, that comes through. Thank you. And that's like that's kind of where the the TikTok thing, you know, I I started that in the in the fall of 2019 because I was on set and someone was like, "Hey, Ashley, you like witch stuff, right?" I was like, "Yeah, I do." Uh, and they were like, "Have you heard of TikTok? It's witch talk." I was like, "The, <laughs> the dancing app? No." <laughs> right. Um, and I was so nervous about showing my face on that app. So for like the first two weeks, I didn't do any face. It was just like spell examples and my voice. Um, and then I, I hit like 10,000 K in two weeks. Wow. And I was like, okay, this is, this is a thing. And I started becoming more comfortable on the camera Mm -hmm. uh, and it's something that I, I struggled with. I'm pretty comfortable with it now, but it took, you know, almost two years to get to that place. Right. Um, learning to to see myself on screen, getting through the body dysmorphia um, and learning how to allow myself to be creative and expressive, like giving myself permission. That's what I write a lot about on Twitter is that when you are being creative, you have to give yourself permission to be messy and permission to mess up because that's what creativity is. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and as we know, like culturally, that's sometimes more difficult for people to wrap their head around the idea that we are fallible and we, we, we make mistakes and um, we, we hope, you know, the, who you were at 19 hopefully is embarrassing to you at, or sorry, you know, two years ago in 2019 should be somewhat embarrassing to you at, in 2021. That's kind of my philosophy. Like I, I always want to look back in 10 years and be like, cringe, but only because that means I'm growing and maturing every day, a little bit better than the day prior. Um, with part of your, you know, as you start foraying into being on camera was I've noticed that you have certain uh, characters, you have characters through your TikTok. Um, is that part of that was it creating some of those characters a way for you to sort of um, slip in behind something that could make you a little bit more comfortable or empower you as you started to put yourself on camera more? So I'm a multifaceted person. I would say that every TikTok character is a part of me. So you see me in the pinks and the pastels, and I love pinks and pastels. And that's very much like the Aset or the Isis part of me. Mm -hmm. And then there's the dark stuff. There's the dark masculine and the dark feminine. So you'll see Lilith and Lucifer. So although those are fictional, I don't share my UPG very often. Um, for those of you unfamiliar with that term, that's unverified personal gnosis. Mm -hmm. I don't share my interactions with any um, entities or my own spiritual practice, but I do, mm, I do fictionalize it. And does that help, or at least in the beginning, or maybe still today, does that somewhat help you with your expression? I think that it does, right? Because it gives me the ability to create, like we talked about before, specific conflicts for specific parts of Pythian Priestess. Right. And so when I can, you know, put on that, just like an actor would, when I put on those clothes, when I get into that mindset, when I turn on the lights, I'm like, okay, so now I'm engaging in this part of myself. It's this archetype I'm working with. And mm -hmm. that does a couple of things. I honestly now think that that actors probably channel and and ha like have this like magical ability be like because they can pull this creation through them a and that's what has been so amazing to really get to practice and study that um 
that acting and it does help i would say you know having different characters is helpful because um you know i am a private person so you get a version of my life but it's refracted in a way well that's that's uber important i feel like <clears throat> because i i i know and look i've i've been i've been through several iterations of social media you know starting from friendster to myspace to live journal <laughs> You know, I I was there at the I was there at the beginning. I mean, I I my first internet experience was an AOL disc that I got my senior year in high school, um, and so I during a certain period of my life overexposed myself extraordinarily. Right, every breakup, every traumatic moment, it, it just so much of yourself just gets poured onto this machine um, because it's it, it it sort of symbolic of community or connection even though you're kind of really typing into a, a, a machine, right? Yeah, absolutely. As, I, as I've gotten older, I have, I, I agree with what you're saying, where it's that you have to keep something for yourself. You have to, you, you, who you are in private and your personal life, um, and especially the things that are really precious to you, they're not inherently for public consumption or criticism. It's taken me a long time to learn that too. I think everyone goes through that phase where we kind of use social media as a journal. Right. We want that feedback. We want that validation and learning to not need or desire that validation is hard. Right. It's something that I, you know, I see people struggle with um, all the time. And I have to say that being in the film industry has taught me the value of privacy and learning to have something for yourself and knowing that I mean, that's a huge part of the occult is secrecy. Mm -hmm. And it's not because it's an evil thing, but it's because it's an interpersonal thing. And I think that's something that the whole world is struggling with right now. Yeah. And, and I've noticed that um, beyond the, the overexposure, which I think robs us of some, some, thoughts that will come to us, some gnosis that will come to us um, that will enlighten aspects of our life. When you're oversharing, um, it, to me, it's, you're not, you're not going inward enough to sometimes tap into that because you're just, you get caught up in the current of what's online. Um, and that can, that could take you off course. If you're always online, then you're going to be feeding into and being fed whatever's in the zeitgeist instead of whatever you're coming to from your own personal, you know, look, looking inward. So if we're going to look at this from a Freudian psychological perspective, or even Jungian, perhaps, you're going to see that social media is representation of the ego. Mm -hmm. Ego is constantly at play here. I'm receiving likes. I'm receiving watch time. I'm receiving validation of who I am. You are not allowing your super ego to, to, to dive in there, to get past the super ego into the id and really understand if you can, why you do things, why like that self-exploration um, is really hard to do publicly. And I don't think it personally, I don't think it should be done publicly. I think mm -hmm. that there's too much at, at risk for your ego to come in and sabotage. I, I agree. And it's, and it's funny because right before we started recording this, you posted a question on Twitter, which I think is really very relevant which was, um, you know, for those on what we call witch Twitter or cult Twitter, whatever you may call it, witch talk even, when does your practice become more about gaining followers and online popularity 
than the enlightenment and ascension of your soul? And how can you avoid this slippery slope? I, I, I almost responded and I thought, you know what, let's save it for this because how rarely do we get to actually have these deep, th to me, that's an incredibly profound question that I think that a lot of young people in particular, but, but older as well, need to ask themselves daily, regularly, including myself. Yeah. Um, any, anyone who creates something online, a blog, this podcast, et cetera, at what point does this less become less about art creation and more about feeding the ego? And especially if you're doing creation as it relates to your spiritual beliefs. So for you, I mean, you're really in the thick of it. You're in multiple social media platforms. How do you maintain that balance? Is it part of keeping yourself back or um, is it just the constant checks or how do you keep from that slippery slope? So there's a couple of things at play here. One, I definitely struggled with that during 2020 because I was constantly glued to my phone. Mm. And I was, first of all, the first thing that you I realized was like, um, this isn't a race. Right. There's no competition here. Like there may be the illusion of competition to my ego, but ultimately, why do I need a million followers? I don't need that. That's a, a little badge I get to put somewhere and say, look how cool I am. That was the first realization. The second realization was when I start creating content that I think other people are going to like, that's where I'm like, oh, this is going to do so well. Not right. I felt created and inspired to do this. Um, and I've, you know, in that time, in the last, um, I guess I would, I would say almost 12 months, I started making content that was, for me, positive messages. And you know what? A lot of the times those happy, I'll call them happy videos, don't even reach 100,000 views. Right. And that's for some really interesting psychological reasons that I did research on and discovered that according to psychologists in a, a recent study done, I think it was at uh, Berkeley, was that the most viral social media videos are ones that people are going to feel enraged about, have a strong opinion about, are inherently negative and elicit negative emotions because you will stay on the video and comment and fight with people. And I was like, you know what? That's not what I'm about and that's not what I want to do. Yeah. So, second realization. And the third realization was what is my message? And my message has changed over time as I have grown, as Pythian has grown and, you know, landing inherently on a, a positive message. And ultimately, if I had to boil Pythian down into like two or three sentences, it would be that everyone is capable of magic. You have the ability to harness this potential. Do it. I, I think I, I can't remember who made the quote. It might be Crowley, but someone once said, we're all doing magic. You might as well learn to do it well. That's great. Yeah, that's it. Mm -hmm. You know, and, um, and I, and I think, it, I think you're, you're hitting the nail right in the head. I, there was, um, I mean, I'm, I'm the worst about doom scrolling and I used to be terrible about arguing. I mean, I've got, I feel like I've gotten much better, but like, like you said, I'm a very strongly opinionated person. I've always been that way. And for a long time, I was very seduced by politics and political activism and things of that nature. 
And so what do you do? You get on Twitter or you get on Facebook and you argue, argue, argue your point. But you're talking to a machine. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a book that my friends reviewed on their podcast, uh, A Regrettable Century, called The Twittering Machine. Oh, I've heard of and- it. Yeah, it's, I want to pick it up. Um, they did a really good breakdown of it, but it, it illustrates social media as general and how it is entirely focused on keeping you engaged, yes. almost in, in like a drug, right? Absolutely. It is a drug. It is an addiction. Yeah. And and part of what keeps it, it's, it's far more likely, like you said, to keep you engaged when you're enraged, when you're upset. Because um, if if I said to you, coffee is good, and you said, yeah, I'm a fan of it also – the conversation probably ends there. Maybe we'll talk about what kinds of coffee. But if I said uh, coffee is good and you said it sucks, that could be a 40-minute argument. Yeah. And no one's going to move from their position, right? But we're going to be engaged, locked into battle, horns locked. And and so, so much of – so at one point, I had a Twitter that I deleted entirely. And I started a new Twitter, the one that I have currently now, um, that was designed to no more arguing. And that lasted like a week and I was right back into it. And I've since gone through and deleted tweets and like I've started fresh a couple of times because I kind of need that to break. And I'm, and I, I think as I've dwelled more into magic and ritual, um, it's less important to me every passing day. I just don't care um, when there's, when there's dramas or fighting or things like that. I, I just don't give a shit to be frank. I mean, what I, where I will generally step in, sometimes to my um, own detriment is when dogpiling occurs just because I've also seen the studies on uh, self-harm suicide rates and how drastically they've increased as the, the documentary social dilemma that highlights some of these pretty travesties and and that, that occurs from online bullying and online harassment. So in those instances, I will sometimes interject myself. I'm sure at some point that will blow back to my face, but, recognizing the function of social media um, or at least its intent to some degree does help navigate those choppy waters because there is positive stuff too that you can get for it. We wouldn't be having this conversation if not for social media. Right. Um, So it's, it's within those choppy waters. Sometimes you can find some, some positivity and something um, meaningful come from it. Absolutely. And there is, that's a great point that you've brought up is that the detriment of having the occult become mainstream. Yeah. And um, when this happened, because I've been in this, I've been deep into this world since like 2007. (laughs) And, uh, you know, most of my time in this world was not online. Mm -hmm. I didn't really step into the occult scene in social media until 2019. So really to see that rise has been incredibly interesting, but also detrimental because I think there's a, there's a loss at a certain point because on mystery school, the ideology that I ascribe to and teach is that we are all coming from the same ray of light. And I encourage your listeners to take a moment and think of the Pink Floyd album, Dark Side of the Moon. Mm. On that cover, you will see a white light, a prism, and then a rainbow on the other side of the prism. This is a scientific phenomenon that we see that crystals or prisms will reflect light into a rainbow sphere. And what I teach here is something that I learned in my undergrad when I was studying the philosophy of religion, fascinating class, is that 
the ray of light, whatever the all is, whatever the absolute is, whatever the unknowable is, the creator of this existence, it is brought to us the human beings and every human being is a prism. And depending on your socioeconomic status, on your gender, the time you were born, and your personal experiences, you are going to get a specific ray of light, whether it is red, orange, yellow, green, blue, purple, or maybe some color that is not seen yet. Mm -hmm. But when you take all of those colors and you put them back together through the prism, it becomes white again. That all of those colors have a bit of white in them. And so there's validity in every practice and every understanding and every whether it's you know um, something that is new or something that is very old and that's something that I think is hard for people to grasp and swallow because we are used to things like politics where there is yeah. a side and there is a right side and there is a wrong side occultism is much more gray and I like to bring our attention to the idea of the ancient Aztecs and their rituals did include sacrificial human, you know, sacrifices. Like that was a ritual. Mm -hmm. And not only was it, um, you know, bloody, but included pulling out, still beating hearts of a willing sacrifice. Holy shit. Right. How can I say that that is a moral and just thing? Well, but it's interesting. If you look at like the movie Midsummer, they kind of highlight in in the scene. For those who have not seen it, there's a scene where a, a couple of elderly folks willingly fall to their death, and oh, yeah, to yeah, the amazing, yeah, to the outsiders who are who are in this Nordic uh, village. It's it's barbaric, right? And and we see this. You talked about politics, but politics are equally as great. We just don't think of it that way. But we, we look at mm -hmm. other cultures and we view them as barbaric, right? We build because they're not ours. They don't. And especially folks that, that have not had the, the luxury of travel, you can see or, or experiencing different cultures. That's where that tribalism forms, right? That harshness forms that that very judgmental perspective comes from it. But you're right. There's a certain relativism to it because to though to that culture, that could be a great honor to be part of that to be able to sacrifice yourself for this thing that creates life for you or uh, the crops or whatever it may be and so from our westernized american perspective it is one way but we have to understand that there are other vantage points that are equally as um, important and profound and and um how do i want to say this uh relevant you know, worthwhile, Sacred. worthy. Yeah. Yeah. I was thinking that like in social media, whether it's politics or occultism, you're playing into an algorithm and you're going to mm -hmm. be put into an echo chamber. And oftentimes you're going to get that black or white perspective where it's an us versus them mentality. Well, I think, I think when we talked about earlier how social media can and often is feeding the ego, um, it's, it's, a, it's seductive. And we've seen people fall into that seductive grasp. You know, I've, and I'm sure you as well, because you work in film, like we've been around actual famous people. It, it, what, what the mainstream would consider famous, right? Um, I've worked at a place that used to produce mm -hmm. YouTube content or manage YouTube content creators, like big, big people, right? I've met Logan Paul when he was not nearly as a, much of a jerk as he 
later became. Um, I've met young influencers who made a lot of money and had big homes and all this stuff from YouTube content and Vine content and things of this nature. And I've seen how seductive fame can be. And I could see how damning it can be when people get caught up in that because you it just like in regular traditional Hollywood, unless you're, I guess, Tom Cruise maybe is the one example. At, you have a shelf life for which your fame exists. And at some point that does yeah. typically end. And a lot of people have a real difficult time dealing with that. And so when I see folks sacrifice their morality lower themselves to poor behavior and um, infighting and, and more sinister kind of behaviors so that they can accumulate as many widgets in their little box of followers. It's sad to me because there will come a time, no matter how big you get when your time is done and you're going to have to acclimate back into the regular world. And not to mention the fact that most of these followers do not equal dollars or or anything really tangible other than that dopamine hit. You just said the money. That's what I think a lot of people don't think about. Your accumulation of wealth is not in the number of likes that you have, but the number of dollars in your pocket. And yeah. I think that for someone to be willing to give you money, you need to have a specific uh, hopefully inviting, not just good content, but a, a pleasant personality. And that's Certainly. why I've realized when I have worked in film, um, you know, on the show that I worked on, we had an influx of people, all kinds. We had D-listers, A-listers all over the place. And the most kind and humble ones were the ones on the A and B list. They were always nice to me. They never spoke yeah. down to me as a PA. Um, and I know that they do not run their own social. I know that for a fact. Yeah. And they're not even a part of that world. I remember when ridiculousness like was being hated on, trending on Twitter. <laughs> and <laughs> someone said to me, all publicity is good publicity. Let them talk. You're still talking about me. Yeah. And I think that's like, I, like that idea gets pushed around a lot. I don't totally agree with it. I think that just staying relevant, like you said, is like you're only staying relevant for how long about something or a negative attribute. And I don't think that's necessarily positive. It's much more, it's graceful. Take a graceful bow and leave the stage. But you're right, yeah. people get seduced by it. And that's where, when I made that question on Twitter, I was pumping gas at the gas station. And I was like, at what point does this really become a hindrance to you rather than a tool? And it's it's when you care more about feeding your ego. And we say that we've been saying that a lot. Let me be a little bit more clear on that. When you're feeding the parts of yourself that desire attention, the parts of you that desire uh, that accumulation of likes and validity, and then there's a place where you're really helping people and making a difference in their lives. And I think actors like Angelina Jolie and Emma Stone know that that they know that that's where their value lies in the movies they create and not necessarily um, who they are as people. Because we've seen, I mean, we could get into like a whole thing about like like sex scandals and stuff like that. And it's like, well, how much of that is there just when we've seen that throughout history, people causing scandals in order to stay relevant. 
and I don't think it's a healthy thing. It's a very nasty cycle. No, because at the end of the day, you're sacrificing part of yourself for that. You, you know, it's not, it's not free. Fame isn't free. You know, whether, yeah. whether fame comes because of you, you've learned, you're such an, you're Meryl Streep, right? You're like, so you've put hours upon hours into your craft and you're recognized as one of the best of your field. And because of that, you've been able to create, you've been able to create a, a legacy of your work. Or you're someone who, like you said, gets famous because of a scandal or something that TMZ reports. You sac- you you pay the piper. You pay something of yourself for that. And I think it's important to ask yourself, what are you sacrificing for this? And is it worth it? One, one sort of weird analogy that I'll draw is um, anytime I've ca- calorie counted, right? Anytime I'm trying to lose weight, get in shape, whatever, you grab a bag of chips. And you look at the chips and you look at the calories of those chips, right? And then you have to know how far you have to walk or for how long you have to walk to get rid of this bag of chips. And when you understand it from that perspective, what the give and take is, it oftentimes makes those things that you would have normally grabbed without thinking about it far less desirable because you know, okay, this little tiny bag of chips that's mostly a bag of air and like is like seven chips in there is going to be an hour and a half of me walking in the sun. And that sucks and I don't want to do that. So I'm going to skip this. I'm going to get a glass of water instead. And I think when we're, anyone's a content creator, be it in traditional media or in online media, it is in, it's, it's important for us to remember that there is a cost. You're giving up something of yourself in order to create this and it might be worth it or it might not be worth it but i don't know how many people think about what that cost is going to be long term oh no my friend that's why that uh that old saying right like going to hollywood you're making a deal with the devil yeah yeah exactly and i think when we say that we're not talking about literal satan but it's literally you're making a deal with yourself what are you willing to sacrifice of yourself the devil being your appetites, right? Being mm-hmm. your your shadow, I guess, if you want to be base about it. But how much are you willing to give into that? And how much of yourself are you willing to sacrifice your your morals and your values? Absolutely. I think also um, be- when things tend to become a trend, it becomes even more difficult to pull away from that because then it's not just your ego that is talking to you. Um, and I mean that both in the sense of like the parts of ourselves that have desire, but also the parts of ourselves that think that we are ourselves and not, and you mentioned earlier, like the prism, right? We forget the ego makes us forget that we are a part of one divine light, at least from my perspective. Um, and that, that this divine light has poured into this world and it is looking at itself and the world around it from various vantage points. And that's what we are. But when we forget that and we start to believe that we are our own individualized things separate from our fellow, you know, man, a brotherhood, sisterhood, you know, that's when some of these desires take hold of our better judgment. Add to that a groundswell of a certain movement or a scene. And very much so you can drown under that because it's, it's, it's like you said earlier, there's an echo chamber that gets created on social media and what you're getting bouncing back to you is just this constant validation without anyone holding you to the fire, like a good, like we talk about community online. I see this talk 
and I kind of roll my eyes to some degree when I hear like the occult community. When oftentimes it's a loose collection of people who have hundreds of different spiritual beliefs that just aren't Christian or atheist, you know, and that's kind of that's the only criteria in some degrees. Um, but you you get sort of surrounded by that and you get overwhelmed by trying to be a part of something. Um, but if it was a real community, we would hold each other. And I'm going to be really careful how I say this. Oftentimes I hear the term hold each other accountable gets thrown around, but I don't mean the way it, it's done. I mean like truly telling someone, Hey, listen, I think that you're giving up too much of yourself for this. I think you're losing yourself in this pursuit of fame. I don't know if I see that often enough for me to really consider this a community. And I think as something becomes popular, like occultism is rising in popularity, that becomes even harder to separate yourself from it. It really does. And I think we're going to really focus on losing yourself, right? You can lose yourself so many ways in the occult alone, yet Mm -hmm. alone to add this new aspect of fame to it. What a recipe for disaster. Um, so there's a couple of things that I want to comment on about what you said. A nice way to, to rephrase in a way what you said is, do we hold the same morals and values? The answer mm-hmm. is no. Yes. No, we don't. You can get a hundred people in a room and they're all going to have different morals and values and, and maybe of some course. will align with others, but who knows? Sure. And it's like being on set. Exactly. And I think what is missing are two very important things. One is respect. This, yeah. yeah. And then the next one is compassion. Mm. It's so easy to get online and write something nasty about somebody and, and be like, there, ha ha, I showed them. And it lives there forever. And yeah. like you, we talked about um, that wonderful documentary um, about the suicide and social media and how it has been on the rise. I think that's something that we don't take into accountability. One of Donald Craig's theorems of magic is that all actions have a magical reaction or result. Hmm. And anything magic, I have a really interesting view on how digital, all right, so let's just put it this way. Digital media is still electricity that's being thrown around. It is still energy. And I think that you can, just like our thoughts and our words are spells, so is our writing. And to write something negative about some, someone or someone hurtful that you claim to be in camaraderie with is really just shows a real lack of character or someone that you work with and stand by. Maybe you don't agree with what they did, but at least help them better themselves. Don't abandon them in times of growth. That's right. something that I've seen a lot in this community is that during times of growth, that cancel culture comes in and oh my goodness, cancel culture is so toxic. It, it, it wasn't supposed to be. It was very helpful during the hashtag me too movement, but I think it's time to grow and say, introduce change culture. You have an issue. You have a dilemma. Let's take responsibility and change it. Yeah. And I think, I think it's important also because part of opening the door to allow people to change means recognizing that they may have already changed. You know, I think we see that a lot as well. And it's a, it's a slippery slope to some degree, but holding people like one of the reasons why I use the name Dave Oscuro online, not that it's that hard to figure out my shoot name, but 
I saw James Gunn, uh, director of Guardians of the Galaxy, get canceled because he'd taken some silly photos that were, you know, kind of controversial. He was like Catholic, Catholic priest thing that he would did on a Halloween, and a bunch of, and because he was very critical of conservatives, a bunch of conservatives dogpiled, dug up some dirt. And he got fired for a while from Disney. Oh, that's right. I remember that. Yeah, yeah. And I remember thinking, I have a, I have a, 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 I, I have a big issue with corporations telling us what we can do on our personal time. I don't think that they own my social media or my days off at all. Nor do I think that we should allow that. Nor do I think that we should ask Daddy Corporation to punish people for us. I know that law enforcement has failed us, and I know that we're looking for someone to step in and, and get the belt, but I don't think corporations are the way to go. Um, but we have to be able to allow ourselves the room for maturity. And I would dare hope that from whatever your maturity level was 10 years ago, it is vastly different now mm-hmm. and, and that you've grown and that we allow that space. Now, again, you might've been a shit bag back then and you might still be a shit bag now. And you know, you can't ignore that. And some things you can't get over at all because some things are just that terrible, but it's, it's a, it requires nuance. And of course, as we all know, it's very difficult to find nuance in 240 characters. And it's hard to find nuance in 2021 period. We're living in such a confusing and difficult time, a time of a lot of change. And I agree with you. You know, if I was to talk to Ashley at 19 years old, I'm like, Oh honey, you're hot mess. (laughs) (laughs) you have a good heart and you've got good intentions but oof you got you got a lot of work to do and that's good our culture is so afraid of making mistakes and mistakes are how we learn i don't know how else you learn (laughs) i i heard this said once and i love the quote um failure is the secret sauce to success oh yeah I've, i've heard that quote too that's a great quote yeah and and you need it you have to mess up a bunch of times i've messed up a billion times I mess up every single day from little things to whatever. And you have to learn from that. You have to be honest with yourself and, but also forgiving to oneself. And I also think that that's in short, short supply these days. Forgiveness and compassion are incredibly short supply. Actually, there's this really great kids show that came out. I was fascinated. Let me, I'm going to like double check the name, make sure I get this right. It was so good. Oh gosh, I'm not going to find it right now. So this show is on Disney Plus and it's about these orphans. It's kind of like Harry Potter in a way. And they are going to this quote magical school. Uh, And then they have to go through like the hero's journey in the pilot. And then they find out that they're actually like going to save the world because they have empathy and compassion. Nice. And that's Disney showing us on a major mainstream level that these are qualities missing in our society. And to have compassion for someone is say, I recognize that you are also human. I recognize that you have fault and positive qualities as well. And that we're all on this journey together and to forgive each other is really hard. And you no know, self-forgiveness. I think that there's this idea that when you forgive somebody, it says you, what you did was okay. No, right. that's not the same thing. It's not the same thing. To forgive someone is to give them compassion and say, what you did was not okay, but I still accept and love you anyway. Right. And give you a second chance or a hundredth chance, whatever it is. But it's so easy now just to like write 
hashtag canceled, you're over and move on to the next new trend. Well, and I and, and don't you think it's ironic that those of us who believe in any sort of spiritual practice that is designed to raise your level of consciousness, that that we get so easy mirrored in that that what you just talked about, which is very much rooted in the mundane, right? Because if we're all trying to elevate our spiritual consciousness and the end result is that we all recognize that we're all one, then we're all those people who made mistakes and they're us and they've made our mistakes. And I'm not advocating letting wolves into the, the, the chicken you know, coop, but you know, you should protect your, your peace. I think protecting your tranquility is important, but I just think it's ironic that those of us who are actively trying to break the chains of this mundane world too often get caught up in the exact same nastiness that binds everyone else. Because it's really seductive. But let's talk about that for a second. So if we're talking about the mundane world, I'm going to talk specifically about the earthly realm Mm -hmm. and that we live in a dimension of polarity and duality. And let's imagine for a minute we have a long rod, seven feet, let's say. One side is black, one side is white. This is not a representation of good or evil, but it's a representation of different energies. Most of the time people will use the terms masculine and feminine energies. That's an ancient term that was used because it has to do with understanding sex. But let's go for a minute and just talk about Black being the mother, quote, end quote, is meaning being Mm -hmm. receptive. It's a receptive energy that you take into yourself passively. The masculine energy, the white energy, is the projective energy that is active. So every single one of us on this earth has both black and white energy inside of us. And it is a small representation of a bigger representation of the universe. And that is a hard pill to swallow. That's what Augustine of Hippo and St. Thomas Aquinas spent their entire lives trying to understand how can God be all benevolent, omnipresent, and omnipotent, and yet evil exists. Mm -hmm. And the truth is that you need both. We understand that through Taoism, that the yin and the yang symbol, the black is in the white and the white is in the black because they balance each other and create an internal changing force. That's what creates the motion. And that's hard. That is a hard pill to swallow to say that, yeah, you know what? Like, let's take the like most bane, nastiest person. Let's take Ted fucking Bundy. That essence is alive in me somehow. It may not be active, I may not even be aware of it, but it's there. And just inside of him, there was a tiny, tiny piece of him that was good, whether or not he recognized it, acted on it, or squashed it. He probably squashed it because he was mostly just a terrible, horrible human being. (laughs) But to swallow that pill and understand that principle, uh, which is a principle of hermeticism, uh, it's hard. It's hard to do that. And social media, I don't think, would take kindly to that analogy. Well, I, I think, I think you know, it's because it gets caught up and it gets sort of diluted down to such a simplistic term that the, all that deeper understanding, that, as you mentioned, these great, well-known, well-renowned philosophers struggled with. You just can't boil it down that simplistically. Um, and assuming you even had the appetite to try to understand it, even if you did, 
too often it gets it just what you what you get is a as a pale representation of it, and it gets boiled down to black and white, evil, good, left, right. It becomes know, morality, right? Right, yeah. exactly. Yeah, morality is subjective. Sorry, everybody. We talked about the the ancient Aztecs ripping out hearts of still beating hearts of people, and they thought they were the most sacred moment of their life. You can't right. put judgment on that. Well, and and I so when I started this podcast, I I uh, aside from it being a clever pun, I was really and I still am caught up with this idea of culture, mm-hmm. and and specifically, I I maybe oftentimes get too um, romantic with the idea of the counterculture of the 50s and the 60s, which is really the last time I think that there was a genuine movement to try to change the way we think as a society. I don't think it succeeded ultimately. I think there's remnants that maybe succeeded, but as a whole, the movement failed come the 70s, 80s, right? Yeah, um, I agree I'll, with you. Well, I mean, the other thing is that we definitely seen the remnants of it because that those people were able to open the door, especially 2010, uh, and getting that rise of occultism. But for the most part, for like 40 years, it was dead. Yeah, I mean, a lot of the time, the folks that we feel like are controlling the bad stuff that's happening in society, the OK boomers are those people from that counterculture. You know, um, they're the people that went to Woodstock, you know, and, and now they're they get corrupted by the spectacle of the society and the ego and all that jazz. So but I just had this, you know, maybe I'm, I'm holding on to hope beyond, beyond hope that there's still a chance that that level of counterculture could still exist. But I'm often beaten down by the idea. And I think this is something you touched on earlier, that at a certain point, as cultures or movements grow and become mainstream get larger in popularity that they're doomed to entropy you know corruption from within until it rots out like rome or whatever analogy you want to use what is your i I would love your take on that because obviously you're very learned and you have a you're you're one of the few people that i know that really dives deep into history and understanding and doesn't just use buzz terms like is it possible for us to have a counterculture anymore? And and if it is, is it will it be born from sort of a cultist spiritual belief, or is it just let's do the best we can till the asteroid hits the earth? All right. So there's two ways to look at this. I'm going to go through the esoteric or metaphysical ideology first, and then I'll dive into historical aspects. Astrologically, some people disagree with this, and that's totally within their right that the age of Aquarius started at the end of 2020, that we are now going through a huge cosmic shift with the conjunction of Jupiter and Saturn. Yay. But that means that there's going to be a lot of blood, sweat, and tears in order to like get to that point. Like the age of Aquarius will be dope in like a hundred years. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I can hold out that long. Yeah, I don't think so either. So let's get onto the more, the more historical aspect of this. So culture has so what is happening is that within each of these countercultural movements there is a paradigm that is being broken down and then either rebuilt or uh like a new structure is being built rebuilt or new structure mm-hmm. so during the counterculture um it did die out especially because vietnam ended and then there was like this reemergence into society um that not a great example, but let's look at the black community and the POC for 
hundreds of years, they have been able to rebel. And we saw the the civil rights movement and that still exists today. And uh, we saw that in the late 90s, we see it in 2010s, we see it 2021. So I think that yes, it can, it can continue, but it's going to come in and out of popularity. So BLM, for example, wanes in and out of the public consciousness, you know, every couple of months or whatever. Um, and I think that occultism, while being a culture, I hope it also, what it can do is establish new moral value systems and will be able to create compassion and empathy within others. Now, that is a really beautiful wish. Do I think it's likely? No. <laughs> yeah. I, I think there's too much stacked against us. I think with the advent of social media, if you watched The Great Hack on Netflix, it talks about how social media is literally stacked against us uh, and just like the uh, the social dilemma as well. I think as long as we keep feeding our egos with these machines, it will be a lot harder to keep that kind of community. Um, but a part of me says, no, Ashley, you're wrong. That that it's going to actually be wonderful and these people will come and there will be great leaders and new stages of the era will emerge. I hope so. But um, as, as optimistic as I like to be, I think it depends on the people. It doesn't depend yeah. on the leaders. It depends on the people who are doing the inner work, who are following these creators and whether or not they are willing to take upon them like you've said before, personal responsibility, compassion, and ultimately determination. Well, I always go back to the Beatles song Revolution. And, you know, it's John Lennon's response to so many people in the, the anti-war movement wanting him to sort of really uh, put a flag down for where he stands in the movement. And um, it was it was in a lot of ways not well received because right. he really held on to this idea of being peaceful right at a time when the the zeitgeist was shifting towards away from peaceful movements into more militant actions uh, for better or for worse you know and and there's a line where he says you better free your mind instead which always resonated with me even as a as a young person because i think you're right i think it's less about movements and certainly far less about leaders and more about personal growth mm -hmm. and if you're sincerely dedicated and again i know we're speaking with a broad brush because again beliefs are all over the place that fall underneath the the umbrella of occultism but if you're on a spiritual path that is designed to raise your your high, raise yourself to your higher self right your mm -hmm. higher state of consciousness then at least in my life what i've noticed is that it will impact the way you act and react and the more people who do that, by nature, there will be an equilibrium that is found. Now, again, you mentioned Black Lives Matters. And as great as that movement has been, it also gets sort of corrupted and, and uh, trademarked and sold at Walmart and, you know, painted in on Hollywood Boulevard on the same day that, you know, uh, black trans folks are beaten by the police um, but we have a big painting, and so that you know we've we've done our we've done our we've done enough. Um, you know, it's all over now. I think a lot of people, when Obama got elected, thought that a lot of racism had ended. Racism is over. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I, it's not for me. Um, right. No, I, of course not. I, but but like you know, so 
we really do have to change who we are. We have to break these chains that we've been sort of latched on to that have latched onto us in order for societal change to occur. And it, it, you're right. It's a, there's a lot stacked against us as it's, and I don't know if it's, I don't even know if a mass movement like we saw in the fifties and sixties is even a good thing because uh, we talked about cancel culture earlier and we've seen how a, a largely liberal leftist um, movement of which I am a leftist can be easily corrupted by, by the machine. Yeah. And I think that if we can bring this back to esotericism, that's what the age of Aquarius is about. It's no longer about the leader, but it's about the masses. It's about the community. And my hope, right. If we're going to go to my like beautiful, beautiful present is that society will be able to raise its consciousness together to overcome this machine. But that's going to be collectively, we have to find a way to make corporations responsible for the distribution of personal data. We need to, we are the product that they are selling. So we Mm -hmm. either need to quit the socials that we have and create something new, or I don't know. I don't know. I don't have that, that that vision of the future, but there's something that can be done. Like the technology we have need not be evil, but yet lest it be used for evil purposes, we cannot move forward. I agree. There's a, I'm going to use a, a, a movie scene to sort of illustrate a point. I have you ever seen the movie pure country? No. What is this? So it's a movie. My I'm from Texas. So uh, forgive me, but it, there's a country singer named George Strait from San Antonio, Texas. He's very famous in the country scene. And he did a movie called Pure Country. And it's essentially, he's like, um, he, you know, he's sort of presented as one of those, like, in, you remember in the mid-90s, like the sort of the Garth Brooks rock star okay. country guy. You know, he's got all the smoke and the lights and the pyrotechnics and everything but the music, right? <laughs> and he's burnt out. Mm-hmm. And he's tired. And he's lost track of who he is because he's on he's in the circus mm-hmm. right and he he's longing for the days when it was just him and his guitar and his band and and the fans and and it was about the music but now it's about the spectacle right so he's talking to his buddy and they're having a beer and he's you know and George Strait's got this like ponytail and he's got his little beard he's very like rhinestone cowboy now right and the guys they're talking about when they were kids they go to the fair and they go to see this dancing chicken Okay. And you go to the booth, there's a chicken and it's bouncing around. And and what they learn is that the reason the chicken's bouncing around is because he's standing on a hot plate. Oh, I figured what, that's what was going to happen. Yeah. And what this, and what the circus does to make him dance is they turn the heat up oh. and they're, they're laughing about it. And then at one point the, the friend of George Strait says, and it's a sort of a double entendre. He says, you know what? I never understood. Why didn't the chicken just jump off the stage? George Strait's character being the chicken. We're the chicken. Mm-hmm. We're all on the stage with the heat underneath us. And at some point, you just have to ask yourself, why are we still on this? Yeah. Why are we still buying in? You know? And I think you don't have to quit social in order to not buy in. And that's what I'm trying to do right now. So my goal is uh, the three socials that I use, which are TikTok, Instagram, and Twitter. I don't go on for more an hour a day. That's it. That's excellent. Yeah. Wow, and that's like, great. I really love like on my iPhone, it tells me how much time I've used and stuff like that. Um, I am thoughtful about my content beforehand. One of the things I said, if I was going to post this on Hollywood Boulevard for millions of people to see what I say it, 
And then the other thing is like, what is the message that I'm sending here? What am I trying to say with this tweet, with this picture, with this video? And if it's something that I don't feel good about, then I don't post it. That That is excellent advice for anyone, regardless of whether you're a content creator or none of that. I mean, everyone, that is strong advice for folks to take. Remember, everything that you put online is public. Mm-hmm. And I want to thank you because I don't think I've ever seen anything negative from you. It's always entertaining or thoughtful uh, or positive. And we desperately need more of that in this world. So um, let people know where they can find you on social media and anything else you want to plug in terms of how they can get more of this from you. No, thank you, David. So you can find me under Pythian Priestess. That's P-Y-T-H-I-A-N Priestess. Um, that's at TikTok, Instagram. Uh, my Twitter's more for my film Twitter, which is created by Ashley, if you're interested in that. I also teach magic and occultism on my Patreon, which you can find at pythianpriestess.com. And I want to thank you, David, for bringing me on. This has been a lot of fun. And you know, it's so great to talk about the intersection between film and occult and get to talk about things that are happening in our, I guess we could call community, end quote. Um, yeah. And be reflective because being reflective can be something that is positive, not inherently negative. And I hope this was a good representation that we, that others can see that you can be critically minded and yet not judgmental or hateful. Absolutely. And again, that is, that is how we're going to change our world for the better by espousing those ideals and rejecting some of the ideals that society and the media tries to part upon us. There is a a better way to live. And I think that uh, if there are more people like you in this world, they will help us get to that point. So I want to thank you. This has been so much fun. Um, You're so insightful. We could keep talking for sure. There's way more things, especially uh, knowing that you have such a deep background in philosophy. I love all that. Um, So hopefully we'll do this again. And thank you so much. Thank you so much. Um, and, And I wish you all the prosperity in your film career. I hope that we get to work with each other someday. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously uh, your, your Pythian school as well. I hope that folks who are looking for a positive source of leadership and um, instruction may in, be inspired to check out what you're, uh, what you teach and what you share, because I think this has been a good representation of that. So uh, thank you again. I wish you all the best uh, and I hope that you have a wonderful day. Yes, of course. You too, David. Well, once again, thank you to Ashley Pythian Priestess for coming on the show and just, again, sharing so much of her insight on the world. I mean, we talked about her film background, her her love for writing, um, what she focuses on from her uh, teaching perspective at her school, and of course, you know, how that all translates into social media and the pursuit of fame, um, because I think that's an important point that uh, affects most that, that affects most content creators or artists or um, teachers online is sort of the dangers of the pitfalls that social media provides. And I thought that Ashley did a great job of highlighting those things and adding perspective and insight. And I want to thank her once again for coming on the show. And I want to thank you all for spending an hour and a half with us. This, this podcast went a little longer than usual, but again, sometimes the conversations just flow so smoothly that it would be a tragedy for me to cut them short. So I'm sure that we will have Ashley on again. You can find her at Pythian Priestess on social media or created by Ashley. 
I recommend you follow her. She's a very positive influence in a scene that can sometimes um, eat its own tail. And it's nice to be able to talk with someone who's keeping their their eyes focused upwards. So thank you once again. I know there's lots of options when it comes to podcasts these days. I appreciate any time you spend with us. And until next time, gold rings on you all.